decade is Tops for Pops. Hi, welcome to the third round of Which Decade is Tops for Pops, the democratic experience that the whole family can play, from Mersey Beat loving granddads to drill crazed Zoomers. We haven't actually had any drill yet, but all things are possible. I am joined as always by DJ Trev and Nick Parkhouse. Trev, I gather that people have been coming up to you at gigs and wanting to talk about the podcast. Which is really nice because like most of the time at gigs, people want to come up and tell me what I should be playing, which is, you know, that's fine. It's frontline DJing. But, you know, I've, I've got quite a bit of online content out there, you know, mixes and various shows that I've done with other DJs and stuff like that. And no one ever talks about any of it and you know that can be quite disheartening no i've had a lot of good feedback i've had more feedback on the two shows that we've got in the bag already um than everything that i've done in when was the internet invented around about 2009 <laughs> ever since then <laughs> uh nick turns out i was gonna put a plug-in for your book last week 101 forgotten pop pits of the 80s but i gave it a plug thinking it was long out of print turns out it is actually appears to be still available for sale so are you hoping for a sales spike in the wake of these podcasts? Well, define spike. If, if you're lucky enough to have an unsigned version, it's worth an absolute fortune, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, mine signed. They they all are, Mike, yeah. There may be another opportunity for a plug for your book coming up later in this episode. Chaps, are there any matters arising from the uh, previous episode that we need to touch on? Uh, I have one. So we talked at some length about Brother Beyond's He Ain't No Competition in the last episode, which has a, what we decided was a sitar introduction. Hmm. Uh, So on closer inspection of the sleeve notes, she won't surprise you to know I have a copy of Get Even, the 1988 album by Brother Beyond. Uh, No sign of a sitar anywhere. Lots of keyboards and programming, but no sign of an actual sitar player. I tell you who does play the keyboards, who's credited on the album playing the keyboards, Rob Fisher from Climby Fisher. And we've got the Climby Fisher reference in straight away. So it was probably what you might call a synth tar. Well, in the video, it's a bloke with a guitar. I mean, they are a band, Brother Beyond, but I don't think any part of that song has been near an actual instrument. Are they a bit like Frankie Goes to Hollywood? They were actually capable of playing musical instruments, but they were forbidden from doing so in the studio in the way that Trevor Horn didn't let Frankie play on their early hits. Um, I think they did play on some of the stuff they wrote themselves. I mean, you can listen to it again, and the harder I try is the same. I don't think they're anywhere near an instrument there, are they? The only further business I had was with the Brother Beyond song. I voted that as my least favourite, and I kind of... This is why these decisions like are crushing for me, because... I think in hindsight, I should have gone with Halsey or Halsey because you'd mentioned it being an earworm. And I didn't mm. get that at the time when we were talking about it. And then two days later, I was walking around the house, you know, very much in a sort of kitchen disco sense, sliding around in my socks. And it was the Brother Beyond song. Two days later, I couldn't tell you what the Halsey song went like. Well, we asked for listener comments attached to the votes from last time. And we've had a small handful of listener comments so let's find out what some of our listeners had to say so the jimmy hendrix all along the watchtower mark said i tried so hard to convince myself i liked classic rock when i was 14 and then i felt immense relief when i decided i would never force myself to listen to another cream or led zepp album 
Hendrix was my entry point and the one I can still listen to, though I'd never actually choose to. Every wah-wah of this is still imprinted on my mind. Sorry, I was just going to say, did you know, by the way, talking about Jimi Hendrix, that he's got a new single out this week, a collaboration with Zayn Malik from One Direction? Oh, come on. It sounds to me like they've isolated the guitar track from a Jimi Hendrix song and Zayn Malik's done the vocals. I don't know whether this is true, but on first listen, that's what it sounded like to me. It's appalling. I think it would would have been a really bold decision if they'd have isolated Jimi Hendrix's vocals and got Zayn Malik to play the guitar. That would have been braver. We've taken off this rubbish guitar. I don't know who was doing the guitar in on that. Uh, we've got Zayn Malik. He's got skills. It's going to be one of those sad bangers that we referred to last time. Unless it hits the top 10, I'm going to avoid. Uh, Frankie Miller... Alex said, I didn't hate Frankie quite as much as I'd feared. More imaginative production and a different bass player might have headed off the Rod Stewart sings Gumbay dance band vibe. Brother Beyond, Asta from Canada says, like microwave pretzels and the whale spout ponytail, this song is best left in the 80s. It was a takedown for touch and go as well. The person known as only as Centuries of Sound said, I find Would You almost physically unpleasant. It's a turn-of-the-millennium light ents advert sting, which I find completely alienating. It reminds me why I left the UK for 15 years. Yeah, I left the UK because of Touch and Go. And they came back, turned on the one show, and were like, oh, no, there it is again. Girls Aloud, uh, Mark said, as I think you guys were sort of saying, this doesn't specifically sound like anything, more like a general retro vibe. I like the string fills a lot. If this was a trailer for a post-spiky Girls Aloud that never really arrived, I think it's a successful one. And Aster says... Samba, 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 you absolutely can dance to this. Well, my knowledge of ballroom is lacking. It's a Samba. And Halsey, um, well, it's asked her again, why is Halsey, she asks. I know she's won awards, but why? She sounds like a dozen other interchangeable female singers recording now simply don't get her appeal. Fair dues. That might give you a hint as to how the results shook down. At the end of the voting process, which closed about two hours ago. So here we are in last position, earning minus 1.4, the 1980s. It's Brother Beyond. He ain't no competition. Firmly rejected by our listeners. Stuck in the meh zone. Frankie Miller is just behind Halsey. There's not an awful lot in it. Then there's a significant jump in points before we get to number three. This is Touch and Go in third place, only one point for the 1990s. Then there's another humongous jump in points, taking us to Girls Aloud in second place, Jimi Hendrix in first place. So that's two points for the 2000s, three points for the 1960s. I have fed these into the master scoreboard. And here is how the cumulative scores look after just two episodes. Our leading decade as of right now, it's the 2000s, four points. 1960s in second place, three points. 1980s a third with two points. Then we've got a tie. 70s and the 90s have got one point each, bringing up the rear with minus one point, the 2010s. So the 2010s have some ground to make up, and they may possibly do so this episode, I would wager. I have spun the magic randomizer, and the magic randomizer has given us two fresh digits 
they're both the same digit. We have a year suffix of four and we have a chart position of four, meaning that we will be looking at records that were at number four in the charts on the day of recording, November the 30th in 1964, 1974, all the way through to 2014. I will save all the voting info for the end of the episode, but it's also in the show details that are attached to this episode. So let us crack on with our song from... This is He's in Town by the Rockin' Berries. The Rockin' Berries were a beat group from Birmingham and He's in Town was the first of two top 10 hits that they had. Altogether, they had six top 50 hits in a fairly narrow period between October 1964 and January 1966. He's in Town was written by Jerry Goffin and Carole King, no less. And this was a cover of what had been a minor US hit earlier in the year for a group called The Tokens, who'd had a big hit, including in this country, with the version of The Lion Sleeps Tonight. He's in Town peaked at number three, and it was their biggest hit. Trev, your thoughts on the Rockin' Berries? So I was entirely unaware of this. I hadn't heard of the band, didn't think I knew the song, and having listened to it, didn't know the song whatsoever. But I really, really like this. I I think it's brilliant. I like the vocal technique. Is it falsetto singing that he does? Yeah. And I think the group's harmonies, you know, sort of quite 60s, ooh, in and ah, and that got me turned on to it straight away. Given the time of year it was at, if they'd have just put some sleigh bells, that would have been a Christmas tune because it's got that kind of feel to it. And obviously it borders on being a breakup song. It's a, a bloke who's second choice, really. So it is one of those songs that it's a negative song, really. It's, you know, it's a sad song. But I found it strangely heartwarming and uplifting. I really, really like this. This is my kind of 60s tune. Melodically, does Blondie Sunday Girl owe something to this? But Mike's looking around. I'm trying to mash up the two songs in my head and I've got there. That would be my further listening. I honestly think the only thing that this could be improved on uh, was rather than being called... Uh, rocking berries if they were all in the video wearing berets and they've been called rocking berets i love the notion that if you put sleigh bells over it and made it a christmas song the he's in town the he would become santa <laughs> in that scenario wouldn't it that is the cover waiting to happen like he's in town you're leaving me for santa completely changes the dynamic of it then it is a happy song because i always feel sorry for santa like mrs claus she just seems real salty. Uh, I think Santa could do better. It's a disappointed dad, isn't it? His, his little girl cares more about Santa on Christmas Eve than she does about her own father all year round. So this is our new project. Right, let's scrap this podcast. Uh, we're going to do uh, 60 songs uh, reimagined for the modern age. H- Hello, is that Waitrose for a Christmas advert? John Lewis, <laughs> got an idea. Just don't try to make it about sausage rolls, please. Nick, your thoughts? Well, I've got to start this on a downer because I've literally just had a notification come through on my phone that um, Christine McVie has passed away. And I mentioned that because she was in a very early incarnation of the Rockin' Berries in the late 50s, I think, while they were still in Birmingham. I think she played keyboards very briefly. Saying that, I think there's an I think there's a strong chance that one of the three of us has been in the Rocking Berries at some point because according to their Wikipedia page they've had 24 current or past members at some stage of their 
Incarnation. I'd never heard this song before. So I listened to quite a bit of Rockin' Berries over the last few days. And this song stands out. When they got an effective team of songwriters to write for them, they had a hit. I think The Searchers, we talked about that as well, they had a hit with a cover. And it's the same with this for me. It got one of the decade's best songwriting partnerships writing a brilliant song. And it's so much better than everything else that they did that they wrote themselves or that they produce themselves. I agree with Trevor. I'd never heard it before, but I think it's terrific. I think it's got a kind of slightly Four Seasons vibe to it. And we'll come back to this, I think, with the 70s song, because I think that is the same. But no, I think it's great. Would you like a quick, is it the best top 10 hit ever with the word town in it? Oh, go on. There's actually not that many. So I've I've discounted anything where town is not the word by itself. So there's no uptown, crosstown, small town. It's a great list, this, by the way. Really good. You could make an entire playlist of this. Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town. Good record. Santa Claus is Coming to Town. Again, great record. Town Called Malice. Ooh. Old Town Road. Ooh. This town ain't big enough for the both of us. Ghost Town. We've got Run This Town, Jay-Z, Talk of the Town, The Pretenders, When Love Comes to Town, The Best Disco in Town, The Oldest Swinger in Town. My personal anthem. Fred Wedlock, Strange Lady in Town, Kingston Town, Black and White Town by The Doves, Little Town Flirt by Del Shannon and The Boys Are Back in Town by Thin Lizzy. What a great list that is. I might turn that into a supplementary playlist and stick it on the socials. That would be a great playlist, apart from Santa Claus is Coming to Town, because that comes on in June and you're like, oh. I went to see Springsteen once in June and he did play Santa Claus is Coming to Town. I think Shaking Stevens plays his Christmas song, Wham. I never saw Wham live, but if it had been, you know, flaming July and they didn't play Last Christmas, I'd have physically assaulted both members. Get back on that stage. Nick, during the week, you alerted our attention to a somewhat later single by the Rockin' Berries, which failed to chart. This was Rockabye Nursery Rhyme from 1974 and you professed yourself to be absolutely baffled by its very existence. I would encourage anyone to take a listen. What I think happened in the late 60s, I think in an attempt to stay relevant, they became a kind of all-round royal variety comedy band. And so they recorded this thing called Rockabye Nursery Rhyme, which is basically them singing children's nursery rhymes whilst also doing an impression of singers at the time. It opens with a very bad Brian Ferry. As a pop kid of 1974, I can tell you exactly who they were doing. So they started with Roxy Music. Then they did the act that we will be talking about next in the 1970s. Then they did uh, Steve Harley and Cockney Rebel, specifically Judy T, their first hit. Then they did Gary Glitter, specifically Always Yours, his then most recent number one. And they had their own self-pen bits to link them, which were kind of done in the style of mud. It has a modern counterpart. The song which has been at the top of the iTunes sales charts for the last few days, Assembly Bangers by Jason Manford, the comedian. Like Rockabye Nursery Rhyme, this is a medley of childhood songs done in a more up-to-date style with humorous intentions, and I'm praying it is not going to be the Christmas number one. The thing is, the comedy version of The Rockin' Berries is how I remember The Rockin' Berries. I remember them as like this comedy cabaret term who you'd file next to the Baron Knights and the Grumbleweeds. Uh, I, I must have seen them on some TV light entertainment shows at the time. They may even have been performing Rockabye Nursery Rhyme. So it came as a surprise to find this 
really rather good Goffin and King song being their biggest hit from 1964. A pleasant surprise, I would say. Their first two singles, both of which flopped, which were released on a different record label, are called Wah 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 Woo and Itty Bitty Pieces. I've listened to both of them. Wah 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 Woo is particularly shocking. Itty Bitty Pieces is marginally better. He's in town. That's a significant step up. And I've played the original by the tokens, and it compares perfectly well with the original. Uh, It's appealingly plaintive, and it's kind of emotionally believable. It's got a strange song structure as well. It's bookended by the chorus. Then in the middle, you've got this single extended verse. And that works really, really neatly. It's a bit different. It's all far cry from the comedy act that they would sadly later become. This is also the only song I have ever owned. It is the lead track of a compilation LP called Hits from the Ivy League, the Rockin' Berries and the Sorrows. And I have had two copies of this LP on sale via my online Discog stores for a number of years. And maybe this exposure will help shift them. The one in less good condition is yours for £2.65. The one in near mint condition is yours for £3.45. Do not delay. Would that I had known that you had that, because I bought the uh, track on iTunes, so it cost me 99 pence for an investment of just an extra £1.69. I could have got all the other bangers by those what three bands that are on that compilation and the ivy league and the sorrows i can't believe it's gathering dust let's move on to our song from the 70s this is jukebox jive by the rubettes it was the second of four top 10 hits which the rubettes had between 1974 and 1977 during that period they also had nine top 40 hits Jukebox Jive peaked at number three. It was their second biggest hit after their debut hit, Sugar Baby Love, which had been a number one earlier in the same year. Nick, your thoughts on the Rubettes, or as we could call them, the Rockin' Berets. The Rockin' Berets? Well, they wore them, didn't they? Well, they did. It's actually, I think it's really interesting, this. I mean, we can cover the origins of the Rubettes and stuff in a minute, but I actually think there's a lot of similarity between that Rockin' Berry's He's in Town song and this. And actually, if you go to Spotify to the This Is The Rubettes playlist, where they put all their big hits, there is a Rubettes version of He's In Town on that playlist, which sounds a lot like the original of He's In Town. So I actually think that the Rubettes also have a kind of Four Seasons falsetto retro-y 50s vibe thing going on, jukebox jive like they did in 1955. So I actually think there's a lot of similarity between these two songs a decade apart. I mean, it's not Sugar Baby Love, is it? It has tried to replicate the sheer joy of Sugar Baby Love and not quite made it, I think. They've clearly got a formula. Because if you listen to I Can Do It Tonight, the other hits and stuff, they they are cut from the same cloth, aren't they? And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, we talked about Brother Beyond last week. I mean, that sounded like everything else in the charts at the time. But... I think it's fineness, but I I don't think it's any more than fine for me. Fair enough. Trev, what do you think? So obviously, because the central premise of this show is um, decades, I think it's weird when there are tracks that, you know, represent in the 70s. You know, this is a throwback. Uh, you know, they are referencing the 50s. And I think that's just an interesting quirk of pop. You know, there's an awful lot of, you know, very, very current dance music. Sounds like the exact same music that was coming out in 1993. I think it's just something that's going to be an interesting little quirk that will play out, you know, over the shows. 
but this does actually also sound, as I think, quite 70s. There's a bit of basically rollers in there, wizard, maybe Gary Glitter, but it's all right. I didn't know it. You know, I was completely unaware of it. I do like it. I've not gone as far to own it because it's not the type of thing that I play and it's not really the type of thing that I listen to. I think the drummer's vocal bit on it is the best bit because it, it all seems a bit funny. You know what I mean? It's not a novelty record, but they don't seem to be taking it deadly serious. They've got a dance routine that's great. Uh, I love their outfits visually. The berets, yeah, the flares, cracking. I think it'd sound best on a jukebox, you know, like a proper jukebox pub. The Temple Manchester is the place that I would like to hear this on a jukebox with a decent pint. And if I was drunk, I would dance to it, which I think is always a major factor. As I say, I don't want to own it. I'd not be distraught if I never heard it again. Equally, I wouldn't be upset if I did hear it again. It's nice enough. Yeah, I think the 70s were the first decade where we got the 20-year revival rule as a thread right throughout that decade. And in the 1960s, there was no significant 1940s revivalism that I'm aware of. But of course, in the mid-50s, that was seen as the beginning of pop and rock as we know it. Certainly, that's how what I was brought up to believe. I was brought up to believe that pop music started in 1955 with Bill Haley and the Comets and Elvis Presley. And once you're past that stage, it's all ripe revivalism. I do find it weird that 50s music was revived so heavily by acts that were basically trying to appeal to people of my age who weren't born when rock and roll was a thing. Don't quite get how that worked, but it seemed to work because a huge number of hits were based on that premise. Jukebox Jive, I instantly recalled the chorus in my head. And when I mentioned that we were going to be covering the song to a friend of mine of similar vintage, he immediately started seeing the chorus without any prompting at all. Yeah, it is a 50s pastiche and it is tinged with what I call the fag end of glam. The glam's glory days were pretty much a year old by then and a lot of the big hit makers of 1973 were just slightly on the slide and into the void came bands like the Rubettes and Shawadiwadi, who emerged pretty much in the same week earlier in the year. Um, in fact, Sugar Baby Love, the Rubettes, was originally offered to and turned down by Shawadiwadi, and it has backing vocals running all the way through the track, which go Shawadiwadi. Yeah, it's not a patch on Sugar Baby Love. There's a very corny chord progression when they do that. Do, do, do the jukebox, do, do. I'm sure that chord progression has been used by a lot of 50s rock and roll songs, but I can't think of one off the top of my head. It's pretty scrappy as a song because basically almost the whole song is the chorus. Apart from the drummer's spoken word bit and the drummer tended to do spoken word bits on most of their early hits, there's no verse, there's nothing else. It's just chorus, 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 which I find a bit slapdash. I should draw your attention to a small hit that the Rubettes had in 1976 called Under One Roof. It only got to number 40. It is totally different from Jukebox Drive in that it is a gay murder ballad. It was a month later into the charts after Rod Stewart had done his own gay murder ballad, The Killing of Georgie. And it's this country-tinged lament about a gay guy who runs away from home, meets someone else, they shack up together, and he gets murdered by his father. Because though that was the rule in popular culture in those days. If you had a vaguely sympathetically portrayed gay character in TV, movies, or indeed in songs, they had to die 
at the end. That is the price you paid for representation. The Rubet star kind of faded in the UK from 77 onwards, but they carried on having modest hits in Europe, very much catering to the European market, I feel, since some of those hits were Allez Oop, Ooh La La, and Cherie Amour. So you can see what they were doing there. And there are currently, not one, not two, but three rival lineups of the Rubettes ploughing the cabaret circuit. Even worse than the two sprinter versions of Bucks Fizz. Could they just not all come to a gentleman's agreement and just recreate the glory days? Some of their later stuff, the Rubettes, if you you have to trawl through it a little bit to find it, is really interesting, though. Like you say, they do ditch the kind of 50s do-wop, shoo-wop, shoo-wop, wop I think there are some good songwriters in there, and some of the more obscure stuff is actually quite interesting pop music, I think. I think it's when they got rid of their, their original songwriting team. Their songwriting team, they struck pay dirt with the Rubettes and they were also writing hits for Mac and Katie Kassoon. They didn't really write an awful lot for anybody else. And I think once the Rubettes got a little bit of independence, yeah, they did move into more interesting things. Although I haven't actually heard Ale Oop, Ooh La La and Sherry Amors. There may have been a slide. Right, let's move on to our song from... This is The Riddle by Nick Kershaw. It was the third of five top ten hits that Nick Kershaw had between 1984 and 1985. Fairly narrow time period. Uh, During that same period, he had eight top 40 hits. The Riddle peaked at number three. It was his second biggest hit after I Won't Let the Sun Go Down On Me. It was also the title track from his second album, which entered the album charts at number eight the very following week after this one. Nick, I know you're going to have a lot to say about The Riddle, but let's start with you, Trev. Uh, So when you read out the tunes for us last time at the end, the post-podcast planning session that we have, and you read out the tunes, this was the one where all of us went, oh, it's got solid ticks in my criteria. Yeah, I'm aware of it. I know it. I like it. I own it. I do play this. I wouldn't say I play it a great deal, but it'll get a couple of airings every year. And yeah, I would discuss this song uh, with Musos as well, which is like the ultimate thing for me. It's just a great 80s tune. And it's it's got almost the perfect 80s video, which starts, he bursts through a paper wall. Uh, and from that moment on, you're on board with the video. It's so 80s. I could spend the entirety of this podcast just talking about his hair. I absolutely love his aesthetic. And then to get to the tune, the 80s, we were saying about the 20-year nostalgia, you know, throwback type thing uh, with the 70s. For me, a lot of the 80s music kind of feels like the last decade where there were some things that were all new. You know, maybe, I mean, maybe drill music, but drill is kind of just grime and grime is kind of just angrier hip-hop with a bit of rave in there and that's the nature of pop music things are always standing on the shoulders of each other whereas in the 80s it might just be my age but it sounds like there were things that that was brand new and you know i can't think of a lot of music that's come since the 80s where you go oh yeah you can't see anywhere where it's come from but drum and bass Drum and bass, but drum and bass came from rave. And you could see the roots from disco uh, and high energy and a bit of Northern soul and some hip hop. So, you know, there's always that. Whereas, you know, what was Nick Kershaw listening to that made him go, I'm going to make tunes like that? There probably is something there. I mean, there almost certainly will be something there. I'm not aware of it, though. It's just a great 80s tune. It's got a whistling solo in it. 
everything should have a whistling solo in. It's as good as the whistling solo uh, in the Scorpions uh, wins a change and better than the one in Moves Like Jagger. Gigi Diagostini did a banging dance version of this a few years ago now. And it's one of the reasons that I like banging dance versions because when I heard that, I was like, oh, hang on, I know the original of that. Yeah, I'm going to start playing the original. You know, as a gateway drug that is slightly more complex than four floor thumping stuff i could talk about it forever as you can possibly tell i really really like this song i'm really glad you've heard the gigi d'agostino version when i first heard it it was basically the trigger for me to pitch an article to the guardian which was accepted about banging dance versions of classic rock tracks because there are a huge amount and i had a lot of fun with that article but let's not beat around the bush because nick once again the riddle's in your book, isn't it? Tell us all you know. I had the great pleasure of interviewing Nick Kershaw specifically about the riddle. Just talking about the dance remix, when 12-inch singles came out, I mean, there are some great examples in the 80s of extended remixes of great songs, and they really work. What 12-inch singles also did is they just made extended versions of normal songs, and all they do is they cut and shunt bits of it together so if you listen to the extended version of the riddle it is hilarious they just play the introduction twice then they sort of go into the verse and then they cut and paste a bit of the instrumental bit later in a gap where it doesn't belong so the whole thing is about five and a half minutes long and it's just like what it's like someone shuffled a pack of cards and just thrown them up in the air and and that's what you get I agree with Trevor. I mean, I could sit here till Christmas and talk about the riddle. Nick Kershaw spent more weeks in the chart than anybody else in 1984. And you think, if you listen to it, it's weird. It's not what you would call sort of traditional pop music. It is really weird, some of it. And I I sort of agree with Trevor. It's strange how successful it was, considering that when you break it down, it is quite a peculiar sound that he's got. His voice is weird. The songs of a weird construction it followed up this with the song about don quixote you know which was also a top 10 hit and it's just it's like what a weird time to be alive i had this on seven inch single it won't surprise anybody to know i absolutely love it of course the 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 story about the riddle is the lyrics so it was one of those examples of a song where an artist was recorded they finished the album the record company goes no there's no hit we need a hit so they go away they have 20 minutes to write a hit and this is exactly what happened with the riddle he wrote the melody the riddle loved it didn't have any lyrics so just sang what he calls nonsense rubbish bollocks lyrics over the whole thing so they could give it to the record company the producer of the record company went oh this is great we love it he went back and wrote a load of different lyrics and re-recorded it with lots of different lyrics and just none of them worked so they just went oh sod it we're just going to stick with the original rubbish that i wrote in the first place and then they sort of turned it into a game so the video hints that there is something that you have to solve mca records who were the label actually sort of had a competition could you solve the riddle but there was no riddle it was just it just written this nonsense lyric uh to go over the top of it which i think is hilarious and says everything you need to know about probably 80s promo and i think uh, just to point out at this point which you always have to do when you talk about nick kershaw is to remind everybody that he also wrote Chesney Hawks, the one and only, who was performing at halftime in the World Cup in Qatar last night. I presume he sang the one and only, not one of his other... Oh, one of his other hits, what am I talking about? I must have left the room at that point. (laughs) Yeah, and that's why the song was called The Riddle. It was called The Riddle because it was a pseudo-riddle with nonsense lyrics. I have no problem at all with nonsense lyrics because, like Trev, I'm a lifelong fan of the progressive rock band, yes whose lyrics rarely make a great deal of sense. 
Right, I've got to come clean here about the sort of person I was in the 1980s. Because I used pop music at that time as a way of defining my identity, I was basically a crashing snob for most of the 1980s. I hoovered up the music press and I hoovered up a lot of the opinions I read of the music press at face value, particularly the more intellectual wing of the music press. This meant that I was no fan of Nick Kershaw at all. I'd been enjoying that kind of intelligent, literate, sometimes quite subversive early 80s pop, which music journalists sometimes refer to as new pop. Most of those bands had their roots either in the alternative post-punk scene or from the some kind of underground club scene. And it was like a form of entryism. It's like, right, now we're going to try and make a hit, but we're going to make it a subversive hit and a conceptual hit. And there is going to be a manifesto behind what we do. And they would give amazingly well-read interviews to the NME who would, you know, treat them with huge amounts of respect. Now, I didn't see Nick Kershaw belonging to that tradition. And I think that's the problem I had with him. And also with Howard Jones, because I remember Howard Jones and Nick Kershaw coming along at a very similar sort of time. It didn't strike me that Nick Kershaw and Howard Jones had any kind of roots in alternative cultures or underground club seeds. I felt they had been foisted upon us by the record companies. I thought they were dull muso journeymen with nothing interesting to say. All right, Howard Jones thought he had something interesting to say, but it actually it was this sort of quite banal stuff with ideas beyond its station. Okay, I can now say I was wrong. <laughs> I've disengaged my cool filters and I have no problem now acknowledging the magnificence of a lot of 80s pop music that I wouldn't take seriously at the time. And the riddle is a perfect example. I echo everything the two of you said. It's a great song. It's weird. It's wonderful. It's memorable. What's not to like? Let's move on to... This is MC Saar and The Real McCoy with Another Night. The Real McCoy are the only non-British act in this episode. They're a dance collective from Germany, originally billed as MC Saar and The Real McCoy, later on billed as just The Real McCoy. They only had two top 10 hits in the UK. This was the first of them. They had four top 40s altogether between 1993 and 1995. Another Night was their biggest hit, peaked at number two, also, it was a big hit in the States. It peaked at number three in the States, as did a later single of theirs called Runaway. Funnily enough, in their native Germany, where they'd been having modest chart success for quite a while before now, Another Night didn't do brilliantly well. It only got to number 18 in the charts. Not quite sure why. Nick, what do you think of this one? So I am going to speak very briefly, then defer to you two, because I think as dance DJs, you're going to have perhaps more insight into this than uh, I do. I think they were launched in America as the sort of um, Clive Davis, the kind of record company mogul at the time, thought had had a bit of success with Ace of Bass, I think. And he thought, oh, hello, is another Euro pop thing that we we could flog in the US with reasonable success, I suppose, where this is concerned. I'm afraid that I file this under all of that terrible early 90s Europop dance music 
I mean, I know it. Obviously, everybody knows it. You're singing it as soon as you hear it. But it just sounds like everything else. I mean, you can only put a cigarette paper between this and that bloke who had a hit with Tetris. It's basically the sort of the same thing, isn't it? Technotronic, too unlimited. It's got all of that kind of vibe to it. I actually prefer their other hits, whatever it was. Not saying very much. You to explain why it was such a massive moment in Euro dance music, and I'll and I'll go away. Trev, why was there such a massive moment in Euro dance music? Well, this this type of dance music is it's not an anomaly, but it is a weird thing because people who go, oh, I'm into house music, or I'm into techno, would not think that this is what people think of as dance music. Whereas people who aren't into house music and into techno, this is what they think of. In the same way, Two Unlimited and Scooter. And pretty much anybody who has a great deal of success. There are actual house artists who have success. Todd Terry, Roger Sanchez, Armin Van Helden. But when people think of dance music, it's this type of thing. And I find it really hard to know whether or not I actually like this or whether or not I like it ironically. Video-wise, the video looks like a Ramstein video, just played a bit faster, black and white, and people using industrial machines for some reason. And you've got to say, longevity of his career point of view, props to MC Saar for getting his name on the bill first, because eventually it did just become the real McCoy. But when you think of the amount of dance acts there are that have bad rapping verses in there and there's an awful lot there's not many people that you could actually say who the rapper was like in the klf it was ricardo de force who did the rapping but not many people know that unless you're a big klf fan ray from two unlimited but it was ray from two unlimited the standout to that rule would be dr alban because dr alban was actually the rapper and you know that was the entire package like turbo b tried to then make a career after Snap uh, because he wanted to do more of the hip-hop stuff and Snap basically carried on completely without him just using Joe Rent a rapper. Like, I think MC Sar, he will have stuck to his guns for a while going, no, 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 it's MC Sar and the Will McCourt. That's what it is. I hope he got a good payday from that. And his, his rap's terrible. The intonation on it, the vocal technique, the lyrics are just awful. But again, awful good at the time. I would have not had any time for this. I used to go to town centre nightclubs and they weren't called nightclubs. They were called night spots and night was spelled N-I-T-E. And outside, they wouldn't tell you the names of the DJs that were playing. It was just top DJs. And in, in the course of my career, I ended up then becoming one of those top DJs. You know, no one's there for you. They're not really there for the club. They're just there because that's what there is. And, you know, if you can make the night all right, then good on you. And this would be the dance music you'd get. The, you know, the manager would refer to it as the dance music. Oh, we're going to have to have some of the dance music now. Before dance music took over everything, which in the late 90s is what happened. In the early 90s, it was, oh, give them some of that then. And if you got some MC Simon, Will McCoy, you might get Technotronic, you might get Snap, you might get Too Unlimited. And then that's it. The underground, meanwhile, was making credible music that was really good that has stood the test of time more and that you don't like ironically if you like hardcore rave music there's nothing ironic about that i don't know that there's that many people who are genuinely going oh yeah that is a fantastic tune that notwithstanding i do really like it it might be for the wrong reasons but sometimes you know that's how it goes i want to mention the lyric i am your lover your brother you know what I mean? Unless your second name is Lannister, I don't think you can make love to your brother. Keep it outside of the family. Do we call this Eurodance, would you say? Yeah, definitely. It's a cheese fest. 
there are a lot of bad things about this. The female chorus is fantastic. She's got a, a great 90s peak, 90s vocal. The piano intro is really nice. It's quite formulaic. Yeah, but I probably don't like this for the right reasons, and yet like it, I do. It was the number one in Zimbabwe. Good knowledge. There's another classic feature of this record in that the female vocalist never performed with the Royal McCoy because they drafted in a model who couldn't sing to take her place. The original singer was also mightily peeved because the vocal that appears on the record, she only recorded as a demo guide vocal. And then the producer behind the Royal McCoy said, yeah, we use that, that's fine. Let's go with that one. She was like, I could have done a better job, but that's the way that Eurodance works. It's a hell of a vocal. Then if that's a demo guy, it's, I think she absolutely nails that. Karen Kassar is her name. MC Sar has admitted to a grammatical error in his rap. If you look at this with subtitles in YouTube, they've corrected the grammatical error. But if you listen very closely, he says, just another night is all that it takes to understand the different between lovers and fakes. He rapped different. He should have said difference. He holds his hands up to it. Obviously, digital editing technology was not that great in 1994. But again, it just sounds like a rush job. I've got time to correct a word or get a second vocal take. Just bash it out. I do have a lot of sympathy with your stance on this, Nick. I mean, it's the classic thing. If you're not into a genre, it does tend to all sound the same. If you are into a genre, you can hear distinguishing features. Like Trev, I wonder whether I actually like this ironically. I didn't like it at the time. I was talking about being a crashing music snob in the 80s. Actually, I was a crashing dance music snob for a lot of the 90s as well. One of the big shiny discos in Nottingham was called Ritz's. And this is what we would have called Ritz's music. I'm sure it brings back miserable memories for a lot of people of standing around in shiny discos because where else were you supposed to be on a Saturday night listening to music exactly like this that you just weren't into oh god why do they have to play this stuff and just makes you feel alienated and I get that now with me retro goggles on I find Eurodance really quite charming and as a building block in a cheesy club set which is all it really is. Another night works absolutely fine for me. I like absurdly happy music. Absurdly happy music makes me feel happy. I'm a, I'm a simple soul. I'd rather have a cheesy dance track than some doleful troubadour moping away about how they're feeling a bit under the weather and like their first world problems. No, give me this. I also am a sucker for cheesy Euro raps. I, there's something camp about a cheesy Euro rap in that they think they are in the tradition of people from the South Bronx and Compton, but actually it's really clear they come from Ostend or Hilversum, and I love that. I also think it kind of predates Aqua. Aqua hadn't yet happened, but I can definitely hear Aqua in this, so maybe it influenced them. Aqua steps at roots in this kind of music, and and at the time, you know, like bands like Take That aren't making entirely different music to this. He's 17, we're almost in this sort of pocket music as well the best thing about the rap is that will have been included to give it credibility and it really doesn't it makes it a bit cringe but then that adds that oh it's actually quite you know that nostalgia that novelty 
the guilty pleasure of it all. What I struggle to understand. In 2008, the Billboard magazine did a top 100 songs of the first 50 years of the top 100. What's that? 1958 to 2008. So you think there's a lot of good pop songs in there. A lot of good songs that have hit the Billboard top 100. This was ranked in that list. So it was ranked number 91 in the best 100 songs that had ever reached the Billboard top 100 in 50 years. And you think that is clearly nonsense. I had no idea that any Eurodance did that well in the Billboard charts. I didn't think America discovered electronic dance music until EDM. No, they were the Out There Brothers or Out Here Brothers. So the Out Here Brothers were actually two very serious rave and sort of late electro hip-hop DJs. They're highly credible and they went, let's have a hit and then went on to have numerous hits with their musically similar to what they were doing, but more upfront, more cheesy thing. There's quite a lot of that, like uh, recent revelations about it, but Eric Murillo, uh, and he had Real to Real, uh, and that was his, you know, let's make some money, as well as doing all his underground stuff. Um, and, you know, obviously he's been revealed to be a total word that I can't say, but the rappers, the guys that he got in for it, they've done our lives, so that's, that's fair enough. So... Uh, this is a serious question. Have we cancelled I Like to Move It? So I still play that because the bit that you know it for is actually the Mad Stuntman. The Murillo bass line is a classic, but you can't have one without the other. And, you know, the bit that you know it for is I Like to Move It, Move It, which is the Mad Stuntman. He's, you know, he was just almost rent a rapper. I'm playing it with a slight cringe, but not, not a massive one. I mean, I only play... 30 seconds of it anyway. It's kind of dance floor weapon. I'll have to throw out my Madagascar DVD. Then I could just play the version on Madagascar because it's sung by animals on that, isn't it? And so then, you know, he's not been anywhere near it whatsoever. I'm glad that you're not airbrushing the Mad Stuntman out of dance music history. You're standing with the Mad Stuntman. Let's jump forward a decade. Let's go all the way through to... Ride it by Jerry Halliwell. This was the eighth and final consecutive top ten hit for Jerry Halliwell, which included four consecutive number ones. This one peaked at number four. Now, it was the first single in three years. Her previous seven hits had all been in a fairly tight time span between 1999 and 2001. So this was her comeback single. And it's the first and only single where, instead of being credited as Jerry Halliwell, she was simply credited as Jerry. There was only one more single that followed it from the same album, the comeback album, but it only peaked at number 22. And that was basically it for Jerry's chart career. Trev. So on the first go through this, like the first thing I've written is, this is a bit embarrassing. I was watching the video. The video is awful. And with the name change, it just seems to be really obvious what they're trying to do. She just comes across as a poor man's Kylie. The, the video doesn't look like it's tongue in cheek, which I think it's meant to be, but it's not. They've not overemphasized it enough. It's just it's just a very, very bad video. And then at, listening to it a few more times, because I'm like, I, I'm going to have to give this more of a go than that. I actually think that's a bit of a shame because I don't think there's anything really wrong with the song. It feels like it's been mismanaged, which I think you could kind of sum up Jerry Halliwell's career with that post Spice Girls mismanaged. But 
I, I think that you're the DJ, I'm a song. He's, a, he's really, really catchy. And when I first wrote this all down, I, I've written here, I'm undecided about buying or playing this. Since writing that, I've gone and bought it. I'm really wary of making too hasty judgments. As I mentioned at the top of the uh, podcast, you know, I think I was a bit hasty about Brother Beyond and I've, you know, woke up screaming uh, thinking about the fact that I voted that as my most hated track last time out because it isn't and you can't go back in time and change that. The vote is done. So I took a little bit longer on this. It's try- I just think it's trying to be Kylie Minogue. And whilst I don't think it completely nails it, I also don't think it's entirely unsuccessful. Of what I'm aware of Jerry's solo stuff, I think this is the best one. Maybe because that's just being more honest and going, I'll oh, just, just go in there and do Kylie. But yeah, it's catchy. And I think I will play this in the part of my night, which I call sort of kitchen disco, where I play, a, there's a bunch of stuff, Scissor Sisters, Kyra Minogue, that type of thing. I think it's nice. If somebody had played me this and hadn't told me it was Jerry Halliwell, I would probably have liked it a lot more because it's Jerry Halliwell. I watched the video, which is just a cringe fest. And I, and I think that's a shame. I think this is a, a decent song. Yeah, I thought that this would that fell victim of so many top 10 hits of the early 2000s in that it was probably in one week straight out the next week. But it is remembered. It is still in Jerry Halliwell's top 10 most streamed songs on Spotify. It's got over a million streams. It's up there with the likes of Bag It Up in terms of play counts. Nick, did you like it? Um, No. (laughs) Simon Cowell said, it's one of the worst videos I've ever seen in my life. She wrote to him and made him apologise for that, I believe. He should have stuck to his guns, he's right. Yeah. For me, Jerry Halliwell, I think you could make a a strong argument that she was the most successful of the post-Spice solo careers, but also, for me, the least interesting. Even the Victoria Beckham hit, I like more than this. I mean, she had obviously had a big run. She had a run of hits. You know, that cover of It's Raining Men is fine, but unnecessary. And I don't like Bag It Up and Look At Me and Michiko Latino and all that nonsense. And this is just, the lyrics are terrible. I mean, if you read them, your buttocks are clenching with how cringy it is. You know, my body is where this party's at. You're like, oh, do me a favour. I think she'd lost interest by this point as she just decided she wanted to write children's books i don't really like her solo stuff and i like this less than the solo stuff of hers that i well i was gonna say do like but i don't like but i like this less i think it's incredibly forgettable and with some of the worst lyrics and the worst video ever so soz I agree, Nick. One of my the first thoughts I had about this was Jerry has lost interest. She doesn't really know where she wants to go next. She hasn't put the single out for three years. She's giving it another go. For me, for fairly sort of cynical careerist reasons, by this stage, that early 2000s celebrity culture very much dominated. It was all about Heat magazine and gossip websites and pop bitch and holy moly and Anna Nova and everybody wanting to be a celebrity for a celebrity's sake, which was a new thing at the turn of the millennium. And it seems to me Ride It's only function is as a vehicle for Jerry to carry on being a celebrity. But she's thrown money at it. Um, She's hired one of the top Swedish production teams to work on it because there was an awful lot of very successful pop music coming out around the world that originated in Sweden. So it was precision tools for success. But the trouble is, 
with that kind of trying to do a Kylie bit, I think it already feels slightly out of date. I think it is more of a 2002, 2003 record. And I prefer her when she's being more willfully unhinged in that kind of Jerry Halliwell weird way. So Look At Me, I think, works really well. That was her debut solo single. There's, there's a point to it. Bag It Up is appealingly batshit. But a lot of Jerry's solo material suffers from the same problem as a lot of the other Spice Girls solo material in that stylistically, it just bobs around all over the place, trying a little bit of this and a little bit of that and not really committing to anything. With the honourable exception of Emma Bunton, some of Emma's solo stuff was great, especially the 60s themed LP she made called Free Me. So yeah, it's a meh from me, basically. And I think it's time to move on to maybe the 2010s have a bit of better luck this time in that they are represented by the one and only Mr Ed Sheeran with Thinking Out Loud this was the eighth of 40 top 10 hits and counting for Ed Sheeran it was also the second of 13 number one hits for Ed Sheeran, of the top 10 that he's had, these 40 top 10s that break down like this, 26 of the 40 just credited to Ed Sheeran. Six of them, Ed Sheeran plus somebody else. Eight of them, somebody else plus Ed Sheeran. He is a serial collaborator, but this one is all his own work. So it peaked at number one. It spent 119 weeks on the top 100. That included 20 consecutive weeks in the top 10. He's only had one single that's been in the top 100 for longer, and that's Matt Hancock's favourite tune, Perfect, which has been in there for 187 weeks. The video has had 3.5 billion views. 3.5 billion and one, if you include me about two hours ago. He dominated the singles charts in the 2010s. When this first entered the chart in June of 2014, it was one of 11 songs by Ed Sheeran in the top 100, that was impressive enough, but famously, on the 10th of March, 2017, all 16 tracks from his next album, Divide, landed in the top 20, led to the chart rules being changed to ensure that never happened again. He's got round it by collaborating with loads of people. Anyway, Nick, I don't know whether you're going to like this or not. Do you? Well, so if you opened your Christmas presents every year and you got a Guinness Book of Hit singles, it was a great year because I love charts. I've always been obsessed with the data and the numbers and stuff. So you've got to love this song for a couple of reasons. It holds the record for the longest climb to number one, ignoring things like Kate Bush that disappeared and came back and were re-released and the Jackie Wilson stuff. In terms of consecutive weeks on the chart, it took 19 weeks to climb to number one, which is still a record. And it also was the first single ever to spend a year in the top 40. Spent 52 weeks consecutively in the top 40. So for that reason, I love it already because it's got high stat game. It's also one of these records that is so utterly ubiquitous that it is quite hard, I think, to critically appraise it because everybody knows it. What do you say about it? It's inspired by Van Morrison. I believe he credits Van Morrison as the inspiration. He said himself he wrote it as a walking down the aisle song. And you think, God, I mean, how many people must have got married to this in the intervening eight years or whatever it is? It must be thousands. On the whole, I would say I wasn't 
a particular fan. I like him much less when he tries to do the sort of white boy rapping thing. I mean, You Need Me, I Don't Need You is, I think, is one of the most embarrassing songs of the entire 2010s. It's a horrendous song. When he does this sort of thing, I can cope with it. There are better examples than this, I think. I like Photograph, but it turns out he stole that of somebody else and had to pay a fortune for it. I think we're allowed to say that because it was proved. But actually, it's fine, this song, isn't it? If it comes if it comes on the radio, it's like, it, it's fine. It was co-written by Amy Wadge, and we should give a shout-out to Amy Wadge because Amy Wadge is responsible for Eurovision coming to the UK because she co-wrote Sam Ryder's Spaceman. <gasps> so for no other reason than this song has a link to us getting the Eurovision back. Let's cheer for Ed and for Amy. Trev, almost the exact opposite of everything that Nick's just said. Uh, <laughs> so Nick was like, you know, his opening uh, gambit was... This is ubiquitous. Everybody knows this. I didn't think I actually knew this. When you said Ed Sheeran, I was like, oh, Ed Sheeran. And then that song, I was like, ah. And so listening to it, I I think I've heard this twice. And listening to the stats there, I don't know how I've missed it. I think what's actually happened is that I've heard it much more. It is not my type of thing. Now, I, I like Ed Sheeran, the way he manages his media persona. I think he does it very, very well. And I think he's got the curse of success. So, you know, bands like Coldplay and Nickelback. Oh, he's, he's massive. He must be rubbish. Uh, I've had quite a lot of arguments online you know people who were saying he should not be headlining glastonbury and i was of the no no he really should he's a massive pop star he's done huge songs and when he first emerged it was something quite different initially people were taught in the same way that nickelback and coldplay when they first came along people like oh you know there's this this actor doing something quite sort of interesting and then once the massive oh yeah everything's rubbish uh, and i don't think everything but Ed Sheeran does is rubbish. Uh, I think he's got quite a lot of good songs. I think he's got a couple of great songs. I think Sing is a really, really good song. I think Bad Habits is an absolutely outstanding pop record. And I think possibly Celestial, one of his more recent ones, I think a couple of years time, you could be listening to that going, oh, that, that's mental. I don't think this is one of his great songs. This is the type of song that I think makes people not like Ed Sheeran. He's, he's got a really good voice. He's really talented, isn't he? But this, I honestly wish we'd had another song from Ed Sheeran because it's all right, but I didn't want to listen to the full five minutes. I was halfway through going, you know, when you're clicking on a video going, God, how long's left? It really isn't my type of thing. And when you were saying it's everywhere and everybody's heard it, I honestly don't think I've heard I may have heard it millions of times and found it completely forgettable every time. But I do believe music's subjective and I think it's incredibly hard to be objective. I think I kind of managed it because I was going, oh, I wanted to like it because I'm on side with Ed Sheeran. I'm not a fan of Ed Sheeran. I, I don't study Ed Sheeran. I don't own any of his albums. I've bought quite a lot of his singles, mainly because I have to. As I say, there's three or four that I wanted to buy. And, as, and I was rooting for him on this. And it was just a solid no. Is the video shot in Blackpool Tower Ballroom? It all looks a bit smug. I think sometimes he can come across to people as smug. I think if it is in Blackpool Tower Ballroom, it'd have seemed a lot less smug if he'd have done it in Coal Island in Blackpool. I know I would have said he could have done it in the Merry England Bar in Blackpool, but I think that's gone. I couldn't find it last time I was there. You know, it'd have been a lot less smug if he'd have done it in one of them terrible backstreets chippies. The video doesn't endear the song to me at all. It's just a bit smug and the song's just a bit meh. Joe Wiley describes Ed Sheeran's, she describes all of his music as beige. 
I think this is peak Ed Sheeran beige. And I'm I'm so sad that it's this song because I think Ed Sheeran's got some really good songs, but this isn't one of them. Wow. If even Joe Wiley calls a song beige, it must be pretty bloody beige. I would say that considering how many hits he's had, the random number generator, whatever it throws out in the late 2000s, there's an 86.8% chance it will be Ed Sheeran. <laughs> I'm surprised that you've never been called upon to play Thinking Out Loud as the first dance at a wedding, Trev. That's never happened. How hard do you think I try to avoid wedding discos? <laughs> I'm still clinging on to the idea of being a club DJ. I've essentially become a bar DJ. I do sometimes do wedding discos, but it's it's only for people who specifically want me and what I do and, you know, people who've met at my nights and things like that. I get inquiries all the time. How do you do wedding? And I'm like, well, have you heard me DJ? And like, oh, no, but someone says you're good. I'm like... No, get a wedding disco DJ. I've done quite a few wedding discos and nailed them, but it's because they want something quite specific. So I've done one where they wanted a mixture of heavy metal and drum and bass, and that was a great night. I've done one where it was all soul. That was a great night. When they go, ah, just a bit of everything. I'm like, no, get a bit of everything DJ. Get a, a wedding DJ because they'll charge you less for a start. Likewise, I've turned down every single wedding gig I've ever been offered because I don't know the people. Now... Let me take you back five years before the week in 2014 that we're talking about. Let me take you back to November 2009, when I was regularly reviewing gigs for the Nottingham Post. And I had gone to Rock City in Nottingham to review a group called Just Jack, who'd had a hit a few months back with a great song, Stars in Their Eyes, which I absolutely loved. They'd been booked to play the upstairs main hall at Rock City, which is capacious However, ticket sales had been decidedly slow, and at the 11th hour, they were demoted to the basement of Rock City, which maybe holds about 200 people, if you're lucky, and the stage is so low. It's about the height of the desk that I'm sitting at at the moment. You can just step up from the floor to the stage. So I was down there thinking, oh dear, just Jack's career is not going terribly well. And the support act came out and he walked through the crowd and he just hopped up onto the stage, plugged in his guitar, plugged in his loop pedal and played this exceptionally accomplished support slot to an audience, none of whom had ever heard him before and had enough charm and presence to win them over by the end of the set and stepped down off the stage to warm applause. And he walked past me. So I tapped him on the shoulder and I said, excuse me, I'm reviewing this show for the Nottingham Post. I'm thinking I might give you a mention. That was an awfully good set. What's your name? And he told me, and I said, I'm sorry, can you spell that for me, please? And he went, yeah, S-H-E-E-R-A-N. Dutifully punched it into me Nokia. Never bothered putting him in the review. I had enough to say about Just Jack. I could have been possibly the first journalist to have given Ed Sheeran a mention in a printed, albeit regional, newspaper. And I didn't. You could have broke him. Then, about May 2011, he was booked on to later with Jules Holland. The A-team had just come out, but it hadn't yet been a hit. And I tweeted excited because I was a music journalist of some repute, I'll have you know at the time. And I said, hey, all my followers, there's this really interesting guy called, he's called Ed Sheeran. And I think he's going to be quite big. You really need to watch later with Jules Holland. That's my tip. Um, so I was quite invested in Ed Sheeran. And then the A-team was a hit and they had a few more hits. And Nick, you took me to see Ed Sheeran in the main hall upstairs at Rock City a few months after the A-team. I was your plus one. 
I did not enjoy that gig. In fact, I thought, oh God, this is the cult artist that I was championing a few months ago. He's actually not that great after all, is he? Did I stay to the end of the set, Nick, or did I leave? Yeah, I remember watching that, and we were stood at the side near the bar, and the crowd went absolutely potty. Like, you very, very rarely see at a gig, especially for a pasty ginger fellow with a guitar, and they went potty. And I remember stood there at the side thinking, I don't get it. What is it that is going on here that is driving these people to this level of frenzy and i just didn't understand it at all but clearly we were wrong (laughs) clearly he did have something especially when your main song about that time is about a crack addict but obviously that is why he's where he is now yeah and from that point i kind of turned my back on him obviously he's ultimately unavoidable but i have managed to avoid The vast majority of his God knows how many hundred top 100 hits. There are only a few that I recognise. There are a very small few that I actually genuinely do like. Trev's already mentioned Sing. That's great. I love Bloodstream, the one he did with Rudimental. That's a cool piece of music. But then I like Galway Girl. Sorry. I know it's completely fake, but... I like it. And I I can't tell you why. I think Galway Girl is fun. Shape of You is good. Shivers... Really good. Bad Habits, really good. Current one, pretty much okay. Lightning, I'm not really into him when he's collabing with urban types. I find that a bit too calculated to sort of cross-pollinate different demographics. I prefer him really in the style that you get here on Thinking Out Loud, being the troubadour. Uh, Nick mentioned Van Morrison as as an influence. He's also on the record of as having said that Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On was an influence on Thinking Out Loud, and he occasionally quotes Let's Get It On when he's performing it on stage. It is blatantly, obviously, designed to be the first dance of the wedding, and the video merely rams this home. reason I like it is two years later, my partner and I were on holiday in Tobago, and we discovered that much in the same way as you can take any rock anthem and turn it into a bangers, pop us a clock, club anthem you can take any romantic song and turn it into a piece of lover's rock and there was a lover's rock reggae cover of thinking out loud that was played everywhere we went for the 10 days or so that we were there and it just got into my head and the lover's rock version was lovely and that has made me retrospectively enjoy the Ed Sheeran version. So I'm going to look on this favourably because it might be possibly my only chance ever to look on Ed Sheeran favourably. You were talking about Let's Get It On as an influence. There have been two separate court cases of the estates taking him to court for stealing Let's Get It On. I mean, he's been the subject of quite a few plagiarism claims as you know, as people are in the streaming age because there's money to be made. But Let's Get It On has twice failed in a lawsuit. So not just, well, he says it's an influence, but clearly... There are people who think it is more than that. Let's move on to the votes then. So my number one choice, the three points, my three points go to Nick Kershaw. Uh, The scales have fallen from my eyes after decades of snobbery. You two have argued really well for the Rockin' Berries, and I have wavered during this recording. But I'm going to stick with my original intention and give my two points to Ed Sheeran. It's a very, very successful pop record. It has worked as a pop record. It has fulfilled its brief and then some. I respect the efficiency that it has achieved, that success, and it's done it while still being kind of emotionally affecting in its own way. So that knocks the Rockin' Berries down to just the one point. 
Roy McCoy and Jerry Halliwell are on the Met zone, but my minus one goes to the Rubettes. I was excited to hear it again, but it wore off very quick. I find it very slapdash and poorly put together. And yeah, I'm going to say crap there. I've said it. Shrev, let's have your votes. Um, So I've got two dilemmas here. Um, There's normally a couple of tracks. that I've got four tracks that I'm... I really struggled with and it's kind of that new obsessions against like you know classics of mine you know when you 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 hear a song like kind of for the first time or you buy it for the first time and then that's kind of all you want to hear so I've got that with certainly one record almost two and then two tunes that I know inside out and have liked for a long long time I'm just going at first it was between Rockin' Berries and Nick Kershaw and I'm going with Rockin' Berries. I really like it. I feel like Nick Kershaw gets hard done by there because I've liked that for a lot longer. And I think it probably is just the Rockin' Berries is new to me. But there you go. And then the other two that I was torn between is Jerry Halliwell and Real McCoy. And the reason that I'm going Real McCoy is because the production's about as good as 10 years earlier. The rap is as cringeworthy as Jerry Halliwell's video. But I think that cringe adds to it it makes it almost quaint i give a highly commended to jerry because i wasn't i didn't go into that expecting to like it the video really made me want to dislike it and yet the actual tune i do quite like and i'm really sad about my least favorite one it's i can't say that i hate it but my least favorite one is the Ed Sheeran tune it's it's the right artist it's just the wrong song for me i'm afraid right nick over to you uh, i'm in a hundred percent agreement with you here mike on the top three so nick kershaw's the riddle is an absolute classic in my opinion i am going to go for ed sheeran second i know it's machine tool to within an inch of its life but he does know how to do it doesn't he so you know for that reason it could be second and i'm also going to go for the rocking berries third surprising for a song that i hadn't heard before about two weeks ago but i think it's absolutely great and i really like it but i am going to go for my most bad and hated as jerry from the 2000s i just think it's an embarrassment right with the votes from just the three of us First place goes to Nick Kershaw from the 80s, eight points. Second place, the Rockin' Berries from the 60s, five points. Third place, Ed Sheeran from the 2010s, three points. Down in the meh zone, the the sole occupant of the meh zone at the moment is the real McCoy with one point because we have a joint last place. The Rubettes and Jerry are both on minus one points. This is where we throw the voting open to our listeners. You can vote in a number of ways. It's all in the show info attached to this episode, but I'll tell you anyway. On Twitter, we are at which decade tops. On email, we are which decade is tops at gmail.com. On Facebook, just search for us. You'll find us. There's a page. You need to specify your first, second, and third favourite, just like what we've done, and your most bad and hated, or at the very least, least favourite. That's it for this week. I think it's been a tricky week this week. It wasn't like the Girls Aloud versus Jimi Hendrix with, like, two runaway winners. I think musically, it's almost as strong. Yeah. You know, you've got two tracks that do kind of stand out above the rest, but doesn't have the Girls Aloud and Hendrix. Does have Ed Sheeran in there. He's pretty big, isn't he? I think it's potentially more interesting in that there is, yeah, no obvious runaway first place. 
case, statistically, it should be Ed Sheeran, but are Ed Sheeran fans committed enough to pop from six decades to be tuning into this podcast? We shall see. Thanks very much to you, Trev. Thanks very much to you, Nick. My name's Mike Atkinson. This has been Which Decade is Top Pops. See you next time. Which decade is Tops for Pops?